0: One word that can summarize the book of Romans, as we've mentioned in the past, is the word gospel, which means good news. Gospel means good news. And this letter to the Roman Christians was written around the mid 50s A.D. by the apostle Paul, an apostle, is somebody who lays the foundation of the church by Christ's command. And Paul was one of them. And uh, the reason why he was writing to the church was because he actually wanted to go to Spain to bring the gospel there because no one had ever preached the gospel in Spain. And so he wanted to go where the gospel was not preached before. That's what it says in Romans chapter 15. And he tells here the Roman Christians that look, I definitely want to come and see you. But he is also writing to them to enlist their support, prayer support, etc., as he brings the gospel to the country of Spain. The area of Spain. So in in many ways, this letter is a support letter. Right. So if I'm going to ask you guys for support, I'm going to want to know, you know, I'm going to let you guys know who I am, what I stand for, what I believe, and this gospel that I preach, this gospel that unites us. And that's exactly what he's doing in this book. He's letting him know, letting them know who he is and the gospel that he preaches. If you look over in verses 16 and 17. We see here what the gospel is and why, in fact, it is good news. If you skim there, it's because the very righteousness of God has been made freely available to unrighteous sinners. If they repent and believe to help us turn to that very hope. And with appreciation and great thanks to God for this wonderful revelation of his righteousness. Paul backs up as we see today. He backs up and shows us the revelation against the revelation of his wrath against all unrighteousness. Right? The Bible presents this, this the very stark picture, dark picture of the world being really in darkness, covered by the shroud of darkness, because of man's sin. And man is unrighteous. But praise God that even though his wrath is being revealed against unrighteousness, he's also revealing something else. That is his saving righteousness in the gospel. So last week in verses uh, 18 to 24, 18 to 23, uh, we looked at man's state. That is that they are under the wrath of God for sinning against God. You know, as God created all men, he created them to be in a perfect relationship with them. They sinned and had rebelled against the one and true only king. You see there. And so, so now in verse 18, you see there that they are under the wrath of God. Well, then the question is, what exactly is man's sin? So we looked at man's state last week. We also looked at man's sin. They suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. That's what it says in 18 there in 19 to 23. It speaks about how. So God, it says that God had revealed himself in nature, right? The natural realm, meaning that his own fingerprints are everywhere. Evidence for us to find and seek and even to know him. So so knowledge that he exists is. His divine being. He is powerful. He is, in fact, the creator. He reveals himself in the stuff that he made. And this wonderful God, he even hosts us. So he created us. He reveals himself to us. And he even hosts us in his world. But here's the sin. Man's sin is that we don't care. Sinful man, it says, there had no thanks for God, no honor for God. And so we, seeing ourselves really as God... Turn him into our slave. Worse yet, we kicked him out of the house, so to speak. So sinful man here revolted. They stripped God of his glory, if that's even possible. And they gave away his crown. Look there, verse 22. This is just review here. You see here, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so what then is man's sentence? God says that sinful man there in verse 20 of the book of Romans chapter 1 is guilty and without excuse. So all men, he says in Romans chapter 1, all men in general, guilty without excuse. Romans chapter 2, he moves on. He says, look, lest you be confused, I want you to know that even though the Jews, for example, the Hebrew people of the Old Testament, God's chosen people, even they are guilty and without excuse because of sin. And then God Lays out the indictment on all man. Verse 10 of chapter 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. We all face the judgment of God. So this is the very bad news, friends. The very bad news. But remember, Paul here is setting up the good news. He's setting up the good news of the gospel. That even though we stand without excuse. Even though we are unrighteous. Even though we suppress the truth. Even though we are deserving of God's eternal condemnation and hell, God himself offers pardon through Jesus Christ on the cross to everybody who repents of their sins and trusts in him. Now, for the next few sermons I preach, once again, as we simply walk through the book of Romans, we look at the very bad news as we're in chapters 1, 2, and then beginning of 3 in order to set up the good news of the gospel. Our passage this morning deals with the consequences of sin the consequences of sin. Remember, we're just kind of uh, examining here this very bad news. We look at the consequences of sin and I've inter- entitled the sermon The Aftermath of Sin, God's Judgment. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 18 to 32 just so we can get a, a larger, a better understanding of the context even though we focus more specifically on the latter half of this section. Look there, verse 18. I'll go ahead and read that. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. For our purposes today, I'll divide up the passage into two sections. If you're taking notes, verses 24 to 27 and then 28 to 32. And as we look at the aftermath of sin, we see point number one. God gives sinners over to their sinful desires and sinful minds. God gives sinners over to their sinful desires and sinful minds. Uh, By the way, um, you know, if you're visiting with us and you have young children and things like that, you know, just know that as we dive into Romans chapter one, you know, we're not going to talk about details, but we are going to talk about the truth, the truth as it's presented here. So, you know, some of this stuff is not obviously not PG, right? If you're just reading the word of God, his revelation to man. You know, sometimes we come across these types of things. I would encourage you to uh, to take the opportunity according to your wisdom, according to your conscience and your children's consciences uh, to, to begin to have these types of discussions with them about what God says about these types of things, because we know without a shadow of the doubt of the doubt that let's say, for example, their very own friends are talking about these things and they oftentimes will talk about them from a position of having debased minds and such and such. The school system is doing these things. I read an article uh, this last past week about a school district in a school in Sacramento. Uh, and they are advocating the LGBTQ um, agenda to, uh, you know, four and five year olds and these four without the children's permission. And so they're being taught these types of things. And then the children come back home. Right. So they're being taught certain things. And so, friends, we as Christian parents, and if you plan at all to be married and to have children and desire these things, then we need to absolutely familiarize ourselves with what's going on here. Because believe me, the culture will only go in one direction. So just imagine, right, if the public schools are teaching these types of things to our children right now, uh, all sorts of things, just imagine what's going to happen when they... Get into voting age when they become the ones who are crafting policies and agendas for the government, right? This is going to be a very different place than today, and so believe me, friends, this is coming, and it's only going to get more and more and more. Uh, so today, I'm going to be talking obviously a lot about Romans one. I'm going to be recommending a lot of different books. So we would we serve ourselves and our future children and our present children uh, to begin having these conversations now because we know you know, that the school districts are as well. So anyways, point number one, God gives sinners over to their sinful desires and sinful minds. In this first section, God gives sinners over to their sinful desires. Here we're just looking at structure, right? The structure of the passage is what it says. 22 to 27, really, we see these things, God giving sinners over to their sinful desires as a consequence of their sin. Two times we read of man's sin and two times we read of God's judgment. You see there, man's sin is a sin of idolatry. Man's sin is a sin of idolatry. Idolatry is spoken of as exchanging the glory of God. Man makes this great exchange here. You read there, uh, verse 23. It says there, they exchanged, uh, we'll start in 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. So think, the glorious God. For images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 25, they exchange the truth about God for a lie. So they're the truth about God. It's just the truth that He exists, the truth that He is the all powerful one, the Creator. And then they exchange it for a lie, that is, that He isn't the Creator. And then they go on to serve, subordinate themselves to the creation rather than this glorious Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What does He do? We're just looking at the passage here, the structure. What does He do? What's God's judgment? God gives them over to their own sinful desires. Look there in verse 30, 24. Therefore, right, Paul, he's, he is uh, smart. He kind of has like this legal mind being trained in the things of Judaism, the law. He then is converted to Jesus Christ, saved because that before he was a slave to the law, then he becomes saved by Jesus Christ. So anyways, with his legal mind, he says, therefore, because of those things, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves so this is god actively god personally handing people over to what was already in their hearts that's what it seems to say there he gives them over to impurity the term here is just a general term for sexual immorality this is used in second corinthians 12 21 galatians 5 19 and other places but in verses 26 and 27 he gets more specific we see here what he's thinking about I'll go ahead and read 26 and 27 again. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. It's clear here he's talking about homosexuality. God... Or so, as God judges, he hands people over to the lusts of their own hearts. Here, he's talking about to homosexuality. And just to be clear, as not everyone here may know this term, what we are referring to is instead of people having sexual relations uh, with the opposite sex, people have love, sexual relationships with the same sex, that is men with men and women with women. So here again, structure here in the second section, 28 to 32, God gives sinners over to their sinful minds. So first the sinful desires, and then it's sinful minds. You see there the sin. They didn't acknowledge God. Verse 28, look there. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is something, this, this mind aspect here. The fallen mind is something that comes up in verse 21. If you look there, they became futile in their thinking. So even even sin has its effects on our minds. We don't think straight. Here it says that sinners did not see fit to acknowledge God. We're going to be explaining these things later, but first we want to get a hold of structure. What is the judgment then? As they determined that God was not fit, that is not important enough for their lives. God, therefore, hands them over to an unfit mind. They formed their judgments and were given over to their own very judgments. You see what's going on? Sinners who refuse to acknowledge God end up with minds that are disqualified. So they being the ones who disqualify God, they are handed over to their own disqualified minds from being able to understand and acknowledge the will of God. It's exactly what one commentator wrote, sums it up great. The result, of course, is that they do things that are not proper. So the thinking here affects the doing. Okay, so that's explanation that God is handing them over to their sinful desires and sinful minds. But let's see what exactly this means. Double clicking now on sinful desires and sinful minds. Point number two. As we start, we can look at sinful minds. You see, this is what brings about this exchange of God for idols. How would you guys summarize it? When sinful man makes this exchange, the glorious God the inglorious how would you guys describe that i think a one word to one word to summarize their sinful hearts here is pride it's pride if this is conveyed in the language of verse 28 they did not see fit to acknowledge god so when i read that you know i imagine sinful man just sort of you know spring clinging cleaning comes along or whatever he feels like cleaning out the stuff in the attic Spring cleaning comes along for a sinful man. And he just says, I'm going to take a mental inventory of all the junk that clouds up my mind. I'm going to make an assessment. I'm going to make an appraisal. And they come to dusty old God. And God says he has revealed himself in nature, right? Glorious God, his eternal power, that he is, in fact, the divine being the the one who has power over everything the creator that he is worthy of all glory and honor and praise which is exactly what was communicated in the passage psalm 115 that steve read it's all about giving praise to god right that's man's life mission to give glory to the one who is all glorious but they say they come along the old dusty god and they say nah this is arrogance friends if the sovereign god exists you're visiting with us and you're wondering if the sovereign God exists, which, of course, I believe that he does. that's what the Bible says. If the sovereign God exists, you see the arrogance, the self-proclaimed self-importance. You see how egotistical and presumptuous it is to even have God reappraised to begin with. If he exists. I mean, just imagine how you would feel. If your spouse had you appraised on the black market to see how many bitcoins you were worth, whether or not your spouse should keep you around. How far does someone have to go to actually do that? Friends, that example is exactly. Almost exactly uh, what we man has done to his God, his creator. In fact, it's so much worse because that example, in terms of uh, seeing how much or even thinking about auctioning off your own spouse for bitcoins, deciding whether or not you should keep them around, it gets worse with God because God is our creator. We owe our whole entire life existence to this God. But yet we do this in pride of man's sinful mind. A judgment was determined. So not only does man go and move to make him to get God reappraised, a judgment has been made. A judgment was determined in the court of man's sinful mind, in the marketplace of God's sinful mind, and sinful man determined that God was unfit for their knowledge. You can think of going through an assembly line of all the junk in their house, junk in their minds. They stamp him unapproved, disqualified. God, who is worthy of all eternal honor and praise and glory and power is determined unworthy of acknowledging him, unworthy to be recognized. And it gets worse. Not only was the appraisal, not only was there a determination, a judgment. Sinful man says, it says there, that man traded God in, verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for mortal stuff. Verse twenty five, they exchanged the truth about God, that He is God, that He is the Creator, for a lie that He isn't. And therefore they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Whether it be like physical idols, right? Some of you might come from backgrounds where you actually worship physical idols. But here, you know, when we trade stuff in, we're trading stuff the immortal God for other stuff like money, pleasure, control. This is an ugly picture of man, isn't it? The Bible says that we are all opportunists at heart. All of us are opportunists at heart, trying to get what our sinful hearts want. And we even go so far as to trade in the glorious God to get it. How far have we gone in sin to trade in the all glorious God for the inglorious? And so friends, you see that God is personally offended. What does he do? Three times in Romans 1 says God gave them over. 24, 26, he gives them over to their sinful lust to dishonor themselves in their sinful passions. And God gives them over to their sinful minds to do what ought not to be done. That's there in verse 28. So let's be clear, friends, this is judgment. Judgment. Some people might say, well, how exactly is this judgment? Because then they're just going to go on and do what they want. How exactly is that judgment? And then you see, well, if that's judgment and they're enjoying what they're doing, is God is God going to come and clear accounts? Like, how does that seem fair? Well, number one, how is it judgment? We know that it's judgment because, you know, here, for example, <clears throat> we ourselves all know about this, right? If we lie, for example, right, our lies only get us so far. And then once you lay down one lie, then you start adding on a whole bunch of lies And let's say I'm lying to my family or somebody. Eventually, your whole house of cards just comes crashing down. It's like God saying, look, okay, you want to lie? I'll just give you over to your lies. I'll just give you over to your deceit. And all of a sudden, eventually, not all of a sudden, but eventually, and maybe all of a sudden, things just come crashing down. I heard on the news, you know, um, some of you guys are aware that, uh, you know, there was a, a, a boxing match yesterday, combat sports and whatnot. So you have uh, Floyd Mayweather, <clears throat> heard I it, heard it on the news, almost stands to make $300 million from a fight that lasted, I don't even know how long, uh, let's just say 30 minutes of actual fighting. And then the, his opponent, Conor McGregor, he stands to make $100 million. And you think, okay, well, here are men who don't, definitely do not profess to know Jesus Christ, but they're giving themselves to some sort of sin in general. Let's just say it's love of money. We as Christians come alongside and say, well, what in the world is going on? How is God judging them if he's letting them enjoy all of this stuff? Well, friends, you realize that they could be enslaved to violence. And we might not see it yet, but maybe one day their violence is exactly what's going to kill them. Or maybe they're enslaved to money, right? Maybe with the money they can buy women. Women. Maybe with money, they can go and do a whole bunch of illicit things that money can buy. But you realize, friends, that their money is exactly what might do them in. Which is why we ought to be able to say, look, OK, we can have billions of dollars or we can see somebody having billions of dollars and we cannot give a rip at all because we know that the love of money is the root of all evil. Who says that God is going to clear his the account today and come and judge those? Who need to be judged god doesn't clear accounts as one author written had written in 2017 but we can trust that god will do what he sees fit according to his time so that's how we can look over there and see apparently you know let's say some somebody who we might consider as vile uh, and is god judging them yes god in fact is judging them by giving them over to their very desires take sexual immorality for example take aids for example Right, if I marry somebody who does not have any sexually transmitted diseases and I am faithful to my wife, right? Am I going to catch AIDS? The answer is no. If I am sleeping around with many people who might possibly have AIDS, right? Well, my sleeping around, right? My sexual immorality might be the thing that does me in. And when it does, that is God's judgment. So this is God here judging the people by giving them over to their very own desires this also can take place not only with sexual morality, friends this could take place with your if you you if you're visiting with us as a non-christian by working so hard maybe your idolatry is money you give yourself to working 80 90 hours a week all so that you can be comfortable all so that you might be secure but it might actually be your control your desire for security that gives you a heart attack because you worry and burn yourself out. that is too, too can be God's evidence of his judgment. So here is God hands people over to their sinful uh, minds here. Their minds. This is God's judgment. This brings us to sexual desires. Sexual desires. Specifically here he's talking about homosexuality. I looked at, We looked at the mind. Now we're looking at desires. But why the emphasis on homosexuality? Is Paul trying to cultivate some sort of hate? against homosexuals absolutely not is it the worst of sins no it is not the worst of sins is not giving god the glory he deserves that's what it says here in this passage right they did not honor god and they didn't see fit to acknowledge him the all-glorious one that's the main sin and every sin comes from that sin whether it be the sin of the mind, not thinking rightly or thinking wrongly, or the sin of desire. Homosexuality, while a sin, is a sin before God, just like every other sin is a sin before God. But here in Romans 1, the sin of homosexuality is highlighted because, friends, it is an illustration of what is most unnatural. It is an illustration of what is most unnatural when it comes to God's design for relationships, sex, and procreation. It helps to look at the context of the passage to understand why he speaks about homosexuality. So Paul here, remember, he had already stated that sinful man has rejected God's revelation of himself in the natural realm, right? Verses 19 to 20. He already said that sinful man rejects God, even though God has revealed himself in the natural realm. Man's, in, man, in his relationship with God, becomes inverted, right? He's supposed to spend his whole entire life praising God, the blessing his holy name. The judgment is made man tosses him out and then becomes inverted all of a sudden where he was to worship god now he worships himself inverted means like just being turned upside down turned inward so man all of a sudden is god god then in his judgment gives them over to their sin he says okay if it's inversion you want it is inversion you will get and so man goes From no longer loving God, right, that was his mission, love God forever, bless his holy name, he becomes inverted and worships himself, and in God's judgment, he just gives them over to what their heart already wants, and he becomes inverted one step more. even rejects the natural realm, what is most natural here on earth, where he was to love woman, now he continues to love himself. So much so that he wants to be wed and married and have sexual union With his very own self, a person in his own image. You see that there? This is God giving them over to their own inversion, their very own desires. Man rejects God and loves himself. In homosexuality, man or woman comes to reject the opposite sex and loves himself further. Cursed is man as they go against what is natural, God says. What then is natural? What then is natural? Right. So if homosexuality is what is unnatural, according to the Bible, what then is natural, according to God's good design? We can go back to uh, Genesis 128, where God designed people to have sexual relations with the opposite sex in marriage. So man with a woman, Adam and Eve. Genesis 128, God gives man and woman a mandate, right? First, he gives them marriage. He brings them together, Adam and Eve. Then he gives them a mandate or a mission. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Man and woman, that's what they're supposed to do. So he makes marriage, then he gives them a mission. But in our postmodern age, the most fundamental things are all up for grabs. They're all up for redefinition. In fact, everything is about challenging the status quo, isn't it? We are encouraged to reappraise everything. Judge everything. Get rid of whatever goes against the self. Even organs today. In today's sexual revolution, the foundational things of God are flipped on their heads. We create our own order. And so there is no room for God. But friends, Bible believing Christians for thousands of years now have seen and understood that God is over us and that his creation order is actually plain to all. Now, let's just pause here for one moment. While I say Bible believing Christians who trust the Bible, let me also say that non-Christians for thousands of years have believed the exact same thing. So you can go and read the histories of many different nations who recognize the same thing by God's common grace. He gives right thinking in some different areas, but now actually we're seeing wrong thinking, the D-based mind, really come to fruition in our culture today. So anyways, Bible-believing Christians for thousands of years have understood and recognized that it's clear creation order, God's good design is very clear. Take the basic anatomy of men and women. What is needed to be fruitful and multiply? The question is asked as God has given it to us. uh, There in the mission, the mandate. What is required to be fruitful and multiply? A male and a female. This is, friends, what is natural, isn't it? But we as sinners, it says here, we exchanged the natural for the unnatural. That's what it says in Romans 26 and 27 of chapter 1. 26 says there, the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to or against nature. Paul goes on in verse 27, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Right? So God, you're just giving them over to their sin, that which is already burning in their hearts. It's important here to note that sexual immorality and homosexuality, while sin are rooted once again, in the fundamental sin of rejecting God, And the same thing can be said about all of the vices that you see there in verses 29 uh, to 31. You see all of those different vices, all of those things come from the fundamental sin of rejecting God, not giving him the glory that he deserves, not submitting our whole entire lives to him. Homosexuality is used here because it is the illustration, once again, of what is most unnatural in the sexual sphere. Man wants to be inverted, replaces God for himself. And God continues to judge him in, in their own hearts. He gives them over to what's already there. He says, it's inversion you want, it's inversion you get. And man continues to love himself in his very own nature, same sex even. <clears throat> uh, brings us to the question, is homosexuality really sin? Is homosexuality really sin? Because while some of us might recognize, yes, it's in the Bible, we're hesitant to actually call it what God calls it. So is it really wrong? Is it really contrary to nature? Because he uses some really strong language here. He talks about dishonoring to their own bodies. He's talking about that they have, they have dishonorable passions. He's talking about shameless acts, receiving the due penalty of their error. So friends, some object coming up with pretty creative interpretations of scripture. Some object and they come up with interpretation, uh, creative interpretations of this passage. You know, it's pretty typical. If you don't like what's in scripture, people say either. Number one, the passage that we're looking at does not mean what it says. Right. They come with their own presuppositions. They say, surely that can't be right. It doesn't mean what it says. That's the first option. Another option is to come along and say, okay, look, scripture says what it says, but it just no longer applies for any number of reasons. So number one, it doesn't mean what it says. And then number two, another option towards heresy or rejecting God's truth, suppressing God's truth is to say it does say what it says, but it no longer applies to us. In terms of um, the passage, not saying what it says, there are some who want to redefine contrary to nature. And they think, OK, if we just look at these words contrary to nature, then all of a sudden homosexuality becomes OK. You look at 26, right? Women exchange natural relationships for those that are contrary to nature. So what's the sin here is what's contrary to nature. These folks, they respond and they say, oh, well, the sin is not going is not going against God's natural created order. The sin, in fact, is going against who I naturally feel I am. You see that trade in right there? Once again, the sin is, they say the sin is not going against God's natural creator order. The sin is going against who I naturally feel I am. Co- contrary to nature means contrary to my psychological nature. The way that I view myself at any particular time. Not God's natural creator. This is a really psych- psychologized understanding of the passage, which scripture knows nothing about. These folks say, if I act according to what I feel is my nature, then I'm not in sin. Now, uh, you know there. Let me just say that this psychologized understanding of Scripture is actually getting more and more popular. I mean, you realize that this day and age we live in a very psychologized society. So much so that people are willing to throw millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to make a movie. like uh, I forgot the name of the movie with Bing Bong. Somebody, somebody, name that name or that movie. Inside Out. It's a movie all about what goes on. Inside the mind and feelings of a person. I'm not commenting on, on the value of the movie or how helpful it is or how well it was made. I'm just saying, look, that's where our society is. Companies are making hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars, talking all about the internal feelings of the self. This psychologized understanding of Scripture should be rejected and it's unacceptable. Now, here, this is just logic here. I understand that, that here, you know, there's feelings involved here, especially if, uh, if you're visiting with us and maybe you wrestle with same-sex attraction. Um, but here, just based on logic, based on the very words that Paul uses, we know he's not talking about one's own psychology. He's talking about God's natural created order. You see the language that Paul uses. What did the women and likewise men abandon it says that in 26, right, the natural use, they abandon the natural use, that is the usage of their body, that is even appendages. They abandon the natural use for that which is contrary to nature. Even the great Greek words used here for man and woman, there's, there's different terms for men and women. Here, he uses terms that actually stress the physical use, the maleness, the femaleness. The Greek words themselves actually testify that he's not talking about a psychologized contrary to nature. It is God's created order. Moving on, others who want to reinterpret, there are those, those who say the Bible's not condemning all acts of homosexuality. The Bible's not condemning all acts of homosexuality, only just some. Here, what it's talking about is talking about adults and children. But this too should be rejected. Because the entire scripture's corpus talks about uh, no matter what types of homosexual activity is going on, it's all wrong. It's all sin in God's eyes. There is no mention, too, of children in the passage. It is only males, that is, those who are anatomically males, with those who are anatomically males. And then you see the parallel, too. You see males with females. It's not, not, not talking about adult females and then younger. You're just talking about the, this category, males with males, and then females with females. Moving on, still others look at the passage and say, it does say what it says, but for whatever reason, we don't need to pay attention to it. It no longer applies to us. Uh, one example would say, because you know what? Love and monogamy are, are really what God desires. I see what it says here, but look, love and monogamy being committed to a partner is really what God values. The who, whether male or female, doesn't really matter. But taking this position means rejecting all of the Bible's teaching of homosexuality. Homosexuality, according to Scripture, is a sin. Uh, And if you want to learn more, I'm going to plug this book. I've given it away in the past. This book is called What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? Now, this is not talking about how you practically love those who are around you with the love of Christ. This is just talking about what the Bible says. This is written by a man named Kevin DeYoung. It says, what does the Bible really teach about homosexuality? Incredibly useful, under 150 pages, looking at biblical texts. Um, So this is hugely valuable. I commend that to you, Kevin DeYoung. What does the Bible really teach about homosexuality? Um, So there, if we're going to say, oh, it's love and monogamy that really matters here, we would have to reject all of the Bible's teaching. And secondarily, friends, this is not a good way to go. This answer is not a good way to go. So stop for a moment and think. Is it really a good idea to make love, regardless of love's object, so the thing that you love, is it a really a good idea to make love's object, or sorry, make love, regardless of object, the true test of pleasing God? Do you really want to do that? To make love. Regardless of object, the true test of pleasing God, which says, like, I love as long as I love, I'm not in sin. I mean, just can love ever be wrong? Can one love wrongly in matter and object manner? I mean, manner and object. I would say yes. Just because someone says they feel like loving something even in their innermost being doesn't make love right. And I think if you think about personal experience, you might know this as someone, even though they are monogamous, they might be committed to you as an individual. They might say, oh, you know what? I'm just falling out of love with you. And I actually recognize that I am falling in love with this other individual. Therefore, I think we should get divorced like Is that good? Is that helpful? Is that encouraging? Does that show commitment? I would say no, it doesn't. I know it sounds very strange in the world's ears. That's uh, where the world says, you know, being who you feel you are, living the way you think you should, right? That's being authentic. That's what we want to do. We want to be authentic. Well, the Bible teaches that true authenticity comes when we live according to the way that our good creator designed us to live in relationship with him, first and foremost, according to his good design and living for his glory. That's true authenticity. Moving on, there are others who see what the Bible says here, but they write it off by saying, look, but I was born this way. Is it wrong if I was born this way? Echoing Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he says that this issue, he really hammers home this issue, and he says that this issue is an issue that needs to be handled with great care by Christians today. Those who say that they have always just grown up feeling this same-sex attraction, right? So there are many, you guys might know them, be friends with them. There are many who experience same-sex attraction, but do not remember a time when they consciously chose to not be attracted to the opposite gender. They just don't know. And then they don't have a memory at where they can say at some point in time, they just chose to be attracted to the same gender. The attraction, as far as they can remember, has always been there, right? So even if science were to discover a gene that's tied to, let's say, homosexuality, or you could just expand it to any sort of gene, a gene that's tied to compulsive gambling or a gene that's tied to incredible violence and murder, all the vices found there in 29 to 31, Friends, we would still be accountable for it. God still calls us to submit our whole entire lives to him who is good. Even if science discovered these so-called genes, they would just be affirming what total depravity already states. Total depravity states that sin has affected every single aspect of our being. So we already saw our mind, right? We already saw that. It also affects our desires, which is what we're looking at right now. It even affects our physical makeup. Even our genes, which it is implied. Sin has corrupted every single facet of our beings. And so according to the Bible, sin, homosexuality is always sin, just like every other sin is sin before God. Moving now to the final point here, looking at application. As we interact with homosexuals, speaking to Christians, and those who wrestle with same-sex attraction, here are some just basic truths and encouragement. So we see here, we're really wrestling with, okay, here we, we see people, they made this great exchange. We see that God judges them, hands them over to their own desires. We look specifically about this, what are these desires of the body, also the, the, the debased mind to think in ways that uh, God did not design. Now we just think about application in relation to how we interact with Um, homosexuality it's homosexuals first let me speak to those of you who might be self-righteous and judgmental let me speak to those who are self-righteous and judgmental here i'm speaking to christians first remember that all people have been made in the image of god All people, even those who have same-sex attraction, are made in the image of God. So give them the respect that is their due as having been made in the image of God. Your very own creator calls you to love them. But of course, that still means that you can disagree with them, right? Loving them doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything they say. Just because you disagree with them does not mean that you can disrespect them. That is certainly sin, And you are not living according to God's will by disrespecting them just because your sin is generally more acceptable than theirs. I'll repeat that again. You are not living according to God's will by disrespecting them just because your sin is generally more morally acceptable than theirs. So remember that they have been made in the image of God. Number two, remember next that they are sinners who are, in fact, in need of Christ. You know, over the years, there are some people who just says, oh, just choose to not do it. Choose to not do it. And then, and, then, and then you can become a Christian. Well, friends, how do you get out of enslaved to sin by simply being by simply choosing to do it? Right. If we believe that we need the sovereign grace of God to give us a new birth and to actually change our will and affections and to love Jesus Christ and, and love his will and seek to obey it then we need nothing but the grace of God in Jesus Christ to change hearts. And so our advice should never be simply just change it and then you're and then you're done. It's no. Let me show you Jesus Christ who can, in fact, change everything about us. Let me tell you how he's changed me, too. Over the years, I've met some people that have made it seem like, yes, I know that sinners are in need of God's grace. But man, homosexuals are in need so much more. The Bible says that all sinners are in need of God's grace. The God. Or to God, the homosexual is as guilty as the religious who relies on the law. This is exactly Paul's point, isn't it? In the book of Romans, right? Romans chapter one, everybody is under condemnation and all are without excuse. Romans chapter two, he goes to Eve. He says, look, even the God's Old Testament people, even they are guilty and without excuse. Those who rely on the law for salvation. Even they are without excuse. And then chapter three, it says once again that no one seeks. No one does what is good. No one seeks after God. He even goes on to say that, look, to some degree in verse 32, they know that their sin is worthy of God's judgment, but they suppress the truth. Everybody does that. So the religious... That might include some of you guys who go by the name of Christian. You might rely on the law, but suppress the God of the law. Look, you are equally a sinner just as the homosexual, right? Both the homosexual and those, the so-called religious who rely on the law. They need Jesus. And the fact that we are all sinners in need of Christ's power to save should cultivate humility. It should cultivate a humility that presses against your pride. If you know that you struggle with being judgmental and self-righteous, it's a humility that that cultivates an identification with sinners, no matter the sin in wanting them saved. So you, apart from Christ, are just as much a sinner and rebel as the one who burns with passion for the same sex. Your rebellion and rejection of God has simply worked its way out in a different way. The wonderful thing is that God saves all sorts of sinners, even though we all have earned God's righteous judgment. And this is the point in first Corinthians. I want you to go ahead and turn there first, first Corinthians. Chapter six. As you turn there, you know, what we're doing is we're pressing against pride, trying to cultivate humility by the word of God. Trying to say that, look, before God, we are all on the same plane. We're all sinners who are in need of God's grace and mercy to change us. God says all sorts of people. And this is what he says here. Paul says he's holding out the very clear judgment of God. And then he's going to move to the grace of God. Let's start with the judgment. Verse nine of chapter six. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves nor greedy nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of god but look you self righteous people who judge others it says there in verse 11 and such were some of you guys but you were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of God. Friends, you realize that what this means is we could look right and to the left. And see that those who are in Christ, in the church, in the pews, members of the same church. We all come from different backgrounds, saved by God's grace. We are, let me underscore, former formerly those who were sexually immoral we are former idolaters we are former adulterers we are former homosexuals we are former thieves we are formerly greedy and formerly drunkards we are formerly revilers we are former formerly swindlers but praise god we have been washed i think this verse is so incredibly freeing <clears throat> to own our sin and to go before God, trusting in Jesus Christ, recognizing that we can, in fact, look right and to the left, no matter what the world says is the scale of morality, and think, yes, we all need the same Jesus Christ to save. So those are the words to the self-righteous and the judgmental. Realize that all men suppress the truth and have earned earned God's righteous judgment, and we are all in need of the grace of God. Now... There may be some here who are more accepting of sin and all in the name of love. I'm going to speak to you now. These words are to those who are more accepting of sin, all in the name of love. Right. So maybe you want to love your family and friends so bad, according to your own definition of love, that loving them means you help them. Right. You're going to do everything you can to help them be whoever they want to be. You're going to love them by helping them love whoever they want to love. But if you're a Christian here, let me just encourage you to stop for one moment and thank the Lord that he did not do that with you. That is not his definition of love. Thank the Lord that God did not just come alongside you like a cheerleader, helping you be whoever you want to be and love whoever you want to love at whatever point in time in your life. Would we not be more sexually immoral than we already are? Would we not be more self-righteous than we already are? More greedy, more selfish, more perverted, more boastful, if that was God's definition of love? Friends, that is not God's definition of love. Because of God's love, He stops us in our tracks by sending Christ the Son in flesh So that we might gaze upon him, so that we might hear him give us the call to repent of our sins and believe on him. He speaks and stops us in our tracks. He pours in salvation, right? He pours his very own spirit into us and he changes our hearts. In Christ's death to sin, his people die to sin. In Christ's resurrection to new life, his people are raised to new life. And he teaches us, according to his word, it says that he teaches us in his school of grace to say no to ungodliness and yes to righteousness. Christ's love does not encourage sin, and so neither should Christian love. Christ's love does not encourage sin, and so neither should the Christians. The love of God actually exposes sin. You see, friends, how hard it is for someone to run to Christ and forever be forgiven of their sin when we are too busy confusing them, them about whether they sinned in the first place? How does one fly to Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sin when we are so busy encouraging them in their sin? In our silence on the matter, we communicate to them that God is silent on the matter. In our encouragement of them, they will think that God himself is encouraged by them. Friends, do not let your so-called love for them now somehow contribute to God's rejection of them in eternity. To be Christ-like in your love means preaching both John 3:16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, right? That's Christian love that preaches that, John 3:16. But Christian love also preaches John 3:36, the very same chapter just 20 verses later, whoever does not obey the son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. So, friends, let me encourage you as you interact with uh, your homosexual friends and family, let me encourage you to speak God's truth to them in God's love, knowing just as 1 Timothy 2, four says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, right? That involves you helping them understand the truth. Speaking the truth in love will, will in fact, require uh, a lot of wisdom. It will require probably seeking help to navigate certain circumstances and certain conversations. No doubt, right? It is not simple. And um, I got uh, other things that you can look at. This book here is called Messy Grace. How a pastor with gay parents learned to love others without sacrificing conviction. Uh, and this was handed out to or this was uh, made available in the bookstore together for the gospel, you know, and they uh, they are very picky in terms of what they're actually going to have people buy and read. And this was approved by, you know, brothers like Al Mohler, Mark Dever, C.J. Mahaney, Ligon Duncan and all the other guys who participate, uh, the major speakers there, Messy Grace. So what happened with this guy's life? Uh, he's now a pastor, but basically he was raised, you know, his parents, biological parents had him. Both they, they get divorced, and they both uh, start choosing to live a homosexual lifestyle. So he grows up in both of these families, and then he talks about how exactly can he hold out the grace of God without sacrificing conviction. Super helpful book. Um, so that's called Messy Grace, and the author is Caleb Bach. If you're part of the Facebook group, I'll definitely put it up there. And if you want these titles later on, definitely talk to me at the back. Uh, so that would be super helpful there. By way of conclusion, let me speak to those who are visiting with us. Let me repeat what the Bible repeats, right? The biggest sin, right? Your biggest sin, like all sinners, is not giving God the glory that he deserves. That's the biggest sin here. So please know, as God's word explains, people are not worthy of eternal condemnation because they experience same-sex attraction. Let me be clear, okay? People are not worthy of God's eternal condemnation because they experience same-sex attraction. People are, in fact, worthy of God's condemnation because they don't care enough about God to submit their attractions to God. They don't care about Him. They've exchanged it, and they're happy to do that. But praise God that God saves all repentant sinners who turn to Christ by faith. So you get what I'm saying here? God saves the unrepentant, or sorry, God saves the repentant adulterer praise god god doesn't save the unrepentant adulterer why because that person refuses to submit himself to the god of glory their very own creator god does not save unrepentant homosexuals who have suppressed the truth and who betray his glory right because they don't care about god but he does save repentant homosexuals who desire by his grace to submit their whole lives, their minds and desires to their good creator, right? And so there are so many examples of, of God doing this right now. Take Sam Alberry, who's a pastor in the UK. He's an author. He wrote this book. He's an evangelical. This book is entitled, Is God Anti-Gay? He experiences same-sex attraction currently and is a Christian and is refusing to act on them, submitting his desires even to God. He wrote this book, Is God Anti-Gay? And other questions about homosexual and, bi- and uh, homosexuality, the Bible, and same-sex attraction. He comes out, he speaks openly. He's spoken to Parliament about marriage laws in the UK. He writes openly about his same-sex attraction on the Gospel Coalition blog. Super helpful. Another book here is What Some of You Were, stories about Christians and homosexuality. This comes out of Australia. These are all just stories of people who are now living the Christian life in churches. Uh, people who were formerly homosexuals. If you're into the rap scene, you can think of Jackie Hill Perry, who speaks openly as well on video on the Gospel Coalition website. Uh, she is a rapper and a spoken word artist. She speaks openly about this. Another one, many of you guys have read about Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield was the chair of queer studies at a liberal university on the East Coast. She becomes a Christian, right? She was living a, an openly gay lifestyle. She becomes a Christian And now she's married to a pastor and she's an author and she writes about her experiences as she submits her affections and desires and attractions to the word of God. There's so many different examples uh, of how we see the power of God changing people's lives. And by God's grace, these people come to submit their whole entire lives to a good God, a God that they can trust in. So this means, friend, for you, even if you experience homosexual desires yourself and are living a homosexual lifestyle that the door of salvation is in fact open to you if you are here and you know yourself to be living in ways any sorts of ways right think about this vile list even in, if you're greedy right uh if you find yourself living in ways that do not honor god god commands you he also invites you to turn from your sin to jesus christ and you will know the forgiveness of sins i want you to turn this passage too. You know, there are there are many who experience these homosexual desires and are non-Christians and they are they are racked Right. Their conscience plagues them. So turn to the book of Hebrews and you see this wonderful hope. Hebrews chapter nine. Right. uh, Some folks and I've spoken to them and their conscience, even as non-Christians, as God has given them their conscience, their conscience haunts them and they want to be cleansed by what's going on there. Hebrews chapter nine here. The author says. As he holds out Jesus Christ, calling people to rely on him. Chapter nine, verse 14. He says, how much more. He says, how much more He's contrasting the blood of the Old Testament sacrifice to the final blood of Jesus Christ shed for all who repent and believe. He says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That means, friends, right now, if you struggle with a. a, If you struggle with, it says there, dead works and your conscience haunts you, your guilt plagues you. Praise God that through the blood of the eternal sacrifice of Jesus Christ, even your conscience can be purified, can be healed. So that regardless of what you might have thought of, of of your past, of what you have done, or currently even maybe as one becomes a Christian, currently as we are in Christ, No matter what you stand before, if you're asking God for forgiveness of sins, you can stand before God forgiven, conscience purified, and you would be justified, justified. That is, even though you are unrighteous, you have, by God's grace in Jesus Christ, a righteous standing placed upon you, counted towards you, declared that you are righteous before a holy God. That is what justification means. You stand before God and God declares you righteous, even though you are a sinner. And all of this by faith alone, all of this by God's grace alone. Another passage here as we finish up, we are coming to a close. Believe me. If You turn over to the book of first John. Here some of you guys might be thinking, oh man, my sin is so bad. God has never seen a sinner of the likes of me. Because of whatever it might be. 1 John chapter 1. This is what I want you to know and hear the promise, sinner. John says, if we say we have not sinned. That's not the right verse. That's not the right verse. Um... Look at verse nine. If we confess our sins, right, that's what you might be wrestling with. You, you think God has never seen a, seen a sinner of the likes of me. It says there, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, those are some those are some interesting words to use there of God. He is faithful and just. Why wouldn't we naturally think that he is loving? He is merciful. Isn't it awesome that you can, in fact, stand before a God, a righteous God, and know that just as he has promised, so his promise stands. He is, in fact, faithful. He has promised that any sinner who repents of their sin can be forgiven. He promises that no matter how unrighteous you are, you can know the righteousness of God. And that promise stands. That's why he says there, if we confess our sins, he is, in fact, faithful because he's promised and just To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise for every single sinner, no matter how bad they think their sins are. Friends, your sins do not surprise God. Not one bit. And so the invitation is to repent of your sins, friend, and you can know the forgiveness of God. One more here as we... uh, Let me emphasize here what Christ has done for us. The judgment, the wrath that was upon us. The reason why one can be saved, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a believer, the reason you can be saved is because God sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross to bear the punishment that we deserved. And so where we were supposed to bear the wrath of God, God sends us a substitute. We think we've made a bad exchange. Therefore, we can look to the greatest exchange where Jesus Christ took upon our sin and the wrath that we deserve so that we might be free. And so, friends, let me tell you, as one who has been sexually immoral, as we all are or have been, if you're a Christian here, that, friends, God cleanses us. We can know right standing all because of God's, because of what God has done in Jesus Christ to bear the wrath that we deserved. One more point. Um, by the way, some of us come from cultures that... Uh, for various reasons, sinful reasons, oftentimes make fun of those who experience same-sex attraction. We use it almost as an insult to our friends. Oh, you are such and such. You are gay. Or, hey, here's, that's, so, that's so homosexual. Friends, you need to stop that. That is not kind. That is not loving. And that goes against God's will. Why would you use that as an insult? These people stand before God guilty and the wrath of God is upon them. So to use that as an insult. Well, friends, we don't want to joke about those things. So if you are one who is prone to joking about that, friends, let me encourage you to confess your sin to God and start seeing those people as made in the image of God. People that we should be praying for, people that we should be loving. And friends, you realize, too, that you may be, if you're using that insult to other Christians, you may, you got to realize that you might be speaking to a Christian who actually wrestles with same-sex attraction. So do you want your Christian friends, your brothers and sisters to be thinking that that is the so-called mortal sin that God never forgives that we want to go ahead and use so flagrantly and throw it in their face? No, friends, we want to once again love them and encouragement. You have no idea who might be wrestling with these types of sins because that's who we were formerly, but we obviously might still wrestle with any number of struggles. So let me encourage you to grow in your love for Christians and your love for non-Christians by holding out the gospel of hope to all those and not insulting them because they wrestle with things, maybe just as we have wrestled with things. Let's conclude with prayer. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we know that you are, according to this passage, God who hands people over to the desires of their hearts But we thank you, Lord, that you are a God who reclaims people as well in the power of the Spirit, on account of the work of Jesus Christ, and according to your eternal mercy and grace and steadfast love. Lord, we pray that as we all as Christians here, as we sit here before you, we pray, Lord, that we would know that the wrath of God was upon us. But it is only by your grace that you have removed this from us and placed it upon your Son, Father, we pray that as we seek to be light in a dark place, that we would hold out the gospel with great hope. May we not rely on pithy comments of just change yourself, as we know that the gospel of God and salvation requires that you change us. We pray, Lord, that we would hold out the gospel with great love. So we pray, Lord, that you would make us wise, that we wouldn't um, compromise conviction. And that we would have big, big hearts as fellow sinners holding out the gospel to other sinners. In your name we pray. Amen.